Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a new book out. It's called This is the Plate. It traces Utah's food history from pre-contact Native American times through the arrival of multinational Mormon pioneers, miners, farmers, and other immigrants to today's moment of foodie creativity, craft beers, and fast casual restaurant chain development. And of course, the book covers jello salads, feudal potatoes, fry sauce, and the distinctive Utah scone. The book's editors, Carol Edison, Eric Eliasson, and uh, Lynn McNeil, join me for the program uh, today. Carol Edison retired as director of the Folk Arts Program of the Utah Arts Council in 2011, and uh, she has received the American Folklore Society's Benjamin A. Botkin Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Public Folklore. Carol Edison, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's, it's good to have you on. Uh, Eric Eliasson is professor of English at uh, Brigham Young University, specializes in folklore, and his books include the Jay Golden Kimball stories, Wild Games, Hunting and Fishing Traditions in North America, and Latter-day Lore, Mormon Folklore Studies. Uh, Eric Eliasson, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Tom. Good Glad morning. Good, good to have you on. And Lynn McNeil is Assistant Professor of Folklore at the English Department at Utah State University, author of the popular textbook Folklore Rules, and uh, co-author of Slender Man is Coming, Creepypasta and Contemporary Legends on the Internet. Uh, Lynn McNeil, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm so happy to be here. Good to, good to be with you. Uh, I want to start with uh, maybe some personal things. And uh, in the introduction uh, to the book, uh, each of you take a, a little moment to recount some experiences. And uh, I'd love to have you uh, to tell some of those stories. Start with start with Eric Eliasson. Um So you say, Eric Eliasson, that you're um, sort of an insider-outsider, right? Um, um, grew up Mormon, but outside Utah as an Air Force brat, but then, uh, latter half of your life, uh, professor at BYU, and so right in the middle of uh, Happy Valley there at Utah County. Um, I wonder if you tell me this. Uh, <laughs> you say you discovered fry sauce as a freshman at BYU. Yes, yeah, that, that it was uh, uh, kind of funny and perplexing to me at the time. My parents were living, living in uh, Denver, and I came to very much enjoy fry sauce as an undergraduate at BYU. I was not a big fan of ketchup, and this seemed like a, a godsend. And it didn't occur to me that this might be a, a local tradition, a regional food way. And so when I went back to visit my parents in uh, Denver, I went to uh, you know burger place there and asked for some fry sauce. And the girl looked at me quizzically and said, you mean ketchup? And I thought to myself, but polite enough not to say, well, if I meant ketchup, I would have said ketchup. That's why I said fry sauce. But even so, it was clear that she didn't know what I was talking about, which was the first moment, really, that might have even been the genesis of this book in realizing that it wasn't a a trend that was sweeping the nation, but it was a, a unique and distinctive part of Utah food tradition. Then later on, uh, you were studying the University of Texas Library, you say. You were approached by a timid fellow yeah. student. Tell me that story. <laughs> yes. Well, she was, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what she was, but, you know, when you're on a college campus, it's not unusual for somebody in uh, who's a student in a class where they have to do some survey to ask you, you come up and ask you if they, you'd be willing to do a survey. And I was in the library, and this young student asked me that, and I I said, sure, and lo and behold, the question she asked was, is there anything that you eat that is distinctive to your 
uh, faith background. And I thought for a second, and I said, well, sure. You know, um, green jello salad with shredded carrot, kind of <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. And without asking me, you know, well, what my faith background was, or even giving me the chances to, to, uh, to pop the golden question or anything like that, she uh, said thank you very much and kind of disappeared back into the library, and I was left a little perplexed by that event, but it also was, reminded me, too, of some of the, the distinctive ways that we think about food and our food traditions in Utah. Uh, Carol Edison, uh, you say you grew up in Utah uh, during the 50s and 60s uh, in a Mormon family, uh, handcart pioneer ancestors uh, on both sides, so very much an insider. What, uh, what, what were the, the food customs that you uh, remember most fondly? Well, I think probably our family tradition of uh, Sunday dinner being roast beef with uh, potatoes and carrots and green salad was something that I knew was, this, this is us. <laughs> so I, I grew up with that tradition being very strong. Um, I already always heard that Jell-O was a big deal, but it, it wasn't in our family. And I certainly knew funeral potatoes, but I didn't know them by that name. Um, I'd gone to a number of funerals, and we always had ham and scallop potatoes. And it wasn't until much later, in the 1990s, that a friend brought some scallop potatoes to a party, and we all loved them so much and asked for the recipe, and they were called yummy funeral potatoes. And that was about the time people started to be a little self-conscious about uh, food traditions locally. And the other thing I can add is that uh, when I was in high school, I worked at the Arctic Circle. And, of course, one of the things to do there was to prepare the fry sauce, and it was a big secret. The woman who was the uh, manager would let us get the ketchup and the mayonnaise ready, but when it was time to add the little packet of secret spices, that was her job. They didn't want the secret out of whatever was in this, this, this fry sauce. But I, I grew up thinking everybody had fry sauce. I was uh, probably, what probably wasn't until the 90s also that a folklore colleague from another state said, wow, I really like doing field work in Utah. I really enjoyed that fry sauce, and I can't find it anyplace else. And I was perplexed. I had no idea it was a local tradition. Then, of course, later, uh, as the Utah State uh, folklorist, had occasion to, um, you know, sample and write about the you know rich traditions, um, immigrant traditions, and, and others in food. Yeah, there are just so many. It's uh, it's really delightful. Every community we went into, we were looking for musicians and craftspeople and storytellers, but we always asked about cooks too because every every community did have very strong uh, culinary traditions. Um, one just popped into my mind that was uh, very, very memorable for me. I was working in uh, Price in Carbon County with a lot of Greek and Italian people, and one of the uh, one of the women who was considered the best Italian cooks. We started talking about pasta, um, and she told me about how she makes the pasta and drapes it, you know, makes the dough and drapes it all over the kitchen to. Um, dry, so it'll be ready to eat, fresh pasta. And another lady, a Greek lady who had the same kind of situation, she was making baklava, and she made the most incredible baklava. It totally melt, would melt in your mouth. 
And the thing I remember about her is that she made her dough and rolled it out so thinly that all she could do to let it dry was to lay it over a pillow. So she had her kitchen filled with pillows and pieces of baklava dough drying on them. That sounds delicious, yeah. Uh, Lynn McNeil, uh, so you're the outsider among this group, not Mormon, raised in Northern California. Um, uh, tell me the story that you write in the book. Um, you, you had a friend, I think, uh, come and, and, and visit you, and, and you went out to a restaurant. I, I did, and this, is, this was um, in the early 2000s. I was a graduate student here, and I was, you know, I, I am as proud of being a Californian as I am of now being a Utahn, but I say with the, you know, full embracing of both those identities that Californians sometimes can kind of be jerks about, <laughs> you know, kind of thinking their state is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, which is absolutely true. I mean, a lot of, you know, really great food movements have begun in Northern California specifically even, but we, she visited me from here and we went out to dinner and we were looking at the menu and she was looking at all of these great things, the desserts that were listed and how they were being described. And she looked up at me and she just said, you know what, if we weren't in Utah, I'd order that. And I just nodded along. I didn't even push back. It didn't, I I don't, it, it, I, it pains me to think now about how I didn't defend Utah as a place where, you know, yeah, they can still make good food here. Um, But it was the whole sense of the place was that I'd gone from a place with fine dining and, and, you know, good cuisine to a place without it. And I just assumed that. I took that for granted um, in, in my time here. But the longer I stayed in Utah and the more time I spent here, and especially... The more time I saw the regions of the country that were identifying themselves as really just foodie havens, starting to turn to stuff that Utah had just been quietly doing all along, like eating locally and farm-to-table movements and canning and preserving and sort of getting back to roots. And I'm going, hey, wait a minute. I think Utah might actually be ahead of the game in in what feels like maybe even a more genuine way than some other places are. And so I did a, a true 180 on Utah food cuisine the longer that I spent here. And you say now you scoff appropriately restaurants that don't serve fry sauce and uh, spend your autumns canning fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you've, you've, yeah. you've, you've embraced it. Absolutely. And it's it's true how, how quickly it happens and, and how this, you know, a place that I would have previously said there was no food culture, suddenly I'm really invested in it. I just sent a care package to some friends who moved away from Utah to Florida and I put both green jello and fry sauce in it because, you know, these are the things that remind you of home when you're away. And yeah, I I feel like I was genuinely transformed in my relationship to food by Utah. I did not grow up in a household that that cooked. We we made food, we ate certainly. Um but there was never anyone in the family who experimented with food or who gardened or canned or or you know really got into the culinary arts. And so I associate any appreciation or you know what minor skill level I have with this place 
more than anywhere else when it comes to food growing and preparing and serving. Let's take a break. Uh, Much more to come, of course, and there's much to talk about. This is The Plate, Utah Food Traditions is the book. Um, And the editors, Carol Edison, Erica Lassen, and Lynn McNeil are uh, with us. And uh, we would love to hear your food tradition, uh, you know, uniquely or seen as uniquely Utah or or not, um, uh, maybe unique in your family. Uh, love to hear from you, your uh, your favorite food, your favorite Utah food, your favorite uh, food tradition. Um, you can reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Parade of Homes, presenting the 2020 Virtual Home Tour, October 23rd through November 29th. Cache Valley Home Builders Association, serving the community and promoting ethical business practices in the home building business since 1973. Information at cvhba.com. Support also comes from Idaho National Laboratory. INL is now on Pinterest, with many STEM resources for students, parents, and teachers. More information available at pinterest.com forward slash Idaho National Laboratory. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger pioneered food TV, have successful restaurants, and started out as two young women in L.A. cooking food from around the world when all their peers were macho French chefs. They were the 2018 winners of the Julia Child Award, and we get their story. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, we're talking about a new book. This is The Plate, it's called, Utah Food Traditions. And uh, the editors, Carol uh, Edison, Eric Eliason, and Lynn McNeil have joined us for the program. We'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, what's your favorite uh, food in your family or food tradition? And uh, are you an outsider, moved into Utah? Have you adopted some of the iconic uh, foods? Or maybe you're adding uh, to the rich tradition of Utah uh, UPR access at um, gmail.com. UPR access at gmail.com is the place to, to get to us. Uh, Eric Elias, and I want to start with you in this uh, segment. Um, uh, under the heading of Utah's iconic foods, you say Utah has an identity problem. You say, what is poor Utah to do? Eat food, that's what. <laughs> that's what you say. What, what's, <laughs> what, what's the identity problem? Yes, and this is something as we researched, we really began to notice in a number of places is, is um, you know, some some states, you know, think think Texas, think Hawaii, have very strong state identities connected to uh, history and um, the various ethnic groups that are there. I, I would say Utah's problem, if it is really a problem, is that the the church and church experience so much defines uh, the state for a lot of people who live here and and outside that uh, certain you know symbols that you might think would unify the state, say the visage of Brigham Young or the, the Salt Lake Temple really do kind of favor one community over over another. And so and I I'm I'm hundred percent sure that conversations like this went on during the Olympics when it's a tradition in the hosting Olympics to showcase the local culture and how do we do that without making it the Mormon Olympics and the Utah and have it be the Utah Olympics instead. And how can we make this the Utah Olympics 
and celebrate Utah culture, what's Utah culture that's not defined or you know dominated by the church? And I'm almost sure somebody said, well, there's fry sauce, and and it went from that and collecting those pins that people might remember from the Olympics, like far and away were the, all of the iconic food items that we mention about Utah foods, and uh, a lot of the bloggers mention this too, who talk about foods and put recipes online. It's, it doesn't matter if you're Mormon, Gentile, active, inactive, that uh, if, uh, you can unify around fry sauce. You don't even have to like it. You just have to recognize it's important as a, a state identifier and uh, and say, yeah, that's, that's something that we're about. There's a, uh, you, you have a photograph uh, in the book, Eric Lassen. Um, I'm uh, turning to this here. Um, so the ultimate Utah foods meal, pastrami burger with ah, yes. fries, a uh, different kind of fry sauce. Uh, this is from Barry's Parkview Drive in Spanish Fork. Tell me about this. Yeah, so um, the, that, that picture that you're looking at, it, we've, I've got a, a pastrami burger which has, has a close connection to Utah and are a staple of one of the many Greek-owned uh, burger places here in Utah, Apollo Burger, Crown Burger, Burger Supreme. Um, and the, there's a slight identification that maybe it might be, the, might be distinctive. It's interesting, some foods that people consume like uh, in Utah, like Cracker Jacks, for example, disproportionately are consumed here, like Jell-O, but we know about and make a deal about Jello, and you know, joking about Jello itself has become part of our culture, maybe even more than, than actually eating it. But in that in photograph, you can see a pastrami burger. You can see two different varieties of fry sauce. You can see uh, an over-the-top thick shake, and you can see uh, a plate of scones. Which, were you know, as far as uh, you want to get as many as you can of the iconic Utah food items in one place, uh, a local burger place like Berry's is probably your best bet for doing that. Um, Carol Edison, um, you write the, the beginning um, um, introduction to the, the section on heritage. And, of course, Utah's more than fry sauce and uh, green jello and uh, funeral potatoes, right? Um, what, what stands uh, top of mind when we talk about Utah's food heritage? Probably just the diversity. I mean, we we try to recognize the diverse groups that have come to the state. The numbers are smaller. The majority usually has more say and more sway. But there's just such richness with all of the groups, from the Native Americans on. And uh, some of the food traditions that, that everyday Utahns enjoy the most are really ethnic traditions. And some of the um, events that we have in the state that are based around food um, are ethnic festivals, and it's a, a wonderful way for folks to come together. We all know that food builds bridges, uh, just like any kind of art artistry does, um, but it's, it's a pretty immediate impact, and uh, the food festivals throughout the state have been one of the ways that the ethnic communities have made themselves more um, known and more appreciated by the general public. In fact, uh, um, in the book, uh, you have a, a whole page, Ethnic Festivals in 2018. Uh, there is a wide variety here. Uh, of course, that's uh, probably impacted uh, this year by, by COVID. 
Yeah, I, I don't think there was much that went on this year. Even the, the big Greek festival in Salt Lake had to be canceled. And, um, boy, it's disrupted all of our lives and certainly uh, the maintenance of of those kinds of public food traditions. Um, just, just a note about the Greek festival. Uh, I, I'm so amazed by them. It's a giant operation that started, like many of these festivals throughout the state, as a... a as a fundraiser for the church, as a women's bazaar, where they would uh, bring together their handiwork or their food and sell it to make some money to help the church. And that's what that festival started out, and it's just become a gigantic event that raises so much money that, they don't, they, that they're able to give away tons of money to lots of nonprofits. So it's, it's really a beautiful project on every, in every way. Uh, uh, before I leave this, uh, I want to talk about this photograph. Really struck me. Uh, th- this is your photograph, Carl Edison, um, and uh, I'll just read the caption. Some Utahns go to great lengths to maintain access to the foods that are part of their ethnic heritage. Every fall, Salt Lake's um, uh, Sifun Tanakis family covers their precious fig tree with tarps attached to a wooden structure built specifically for that purpose. They also routinely grow basil, grapes, and other specialties. So they, uh, and you have a picture of uh, a member of the family and, and this uh, big structure to, to protect their, their precious uh, fig tree. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I live not too far away from that and have looked at it with curiosity over the years and finally figured out what was going on. You drive by part of the year, and there was this gigantic box covered with blue tarps. And then during the summer, you drive by, and it was just a big, gigantic bush. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. People do care about keeping food traditions alive. And if you don't have the ingredients, you've got to be creative. Um, I know the Greeks and the Italians who came as part of the mining, miners the first part of the 1900s, uh, they immediately became gardeners. They were busy out there uh, getting fresh vegetables that would supply them with what they needed to make what they loved. Lynn McNeil, um, I want to talk about liquor, um, alcohol. Uh, you, <laughs> you, you've noticed, Tom, that I wrote like all the vice-related chapters. I, in the book. I, yes, I, I did notice that. Um, uh, so, in fact, you have a, kind of this fun. I'm not sure where you found this. You photograph of a mug. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, you may maybe in Utah. That was in. That's a little shot glass that I found in um, a souvenir shop just outside Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah. And I just thought, man, there it is. That's what people who come to Utah and go to the tourist shops want to bring back home somewhere else. That that sort of sums up the attitude. So the subtitle of, uh, well, the title of Chapter 3, No Happy Hour for Happy Valley, <laughs> subtitled The Push and Pull of Alcohol yeah. in the Beehive State. One of the misconceptions that the people have is that Utah is a totally dry state. Yeah, I think one of the things that amazed me in doing the research about this was how long-standing that misperception is. I, I, you know, I opened the chapter with quotes from the, you know, the media, basically, about Utah, going back to the late 1800s, all the way up to the mid-2000s, of people saying, you know, everyone thinks Utah's dry, and it's not. So, for like the history of the state, there has been the presence of 
alcohol and the production of alcohol and the consumption of alcohol all along the way. And yet Utah just cannot shake the reputation of being a dry state. And of course, it's not a completely false reputation. There are some stringent laws about the um, production and consumption of and purchasing of alcohol, though often they're more strange than stringent. There are other states in the country that have similarly, if not more, restrictive laws on alcohol. But Utah's always sort of been known for having strange ones, like the Zion Curtain, which went away. We have an image in the book of the Zion Curtain being ceremoniously lifted out of place in 2017 when it was finally deemed unnecessary. But the idea that that the problem with alcohol is the witnessing of its preparation or that there would be danger in having a drink handed over the bar to someone. It, it lends this air of, of sort of befuddling mystery to the alcohol laws of Utah that I think make them especially stand out to people um, who aren't from here. The one word that you do <laughs> that I've heard as well, you put in the book weird, you say maybe quirky is a little better, but. Yeah, I think quirky, absolutely. And it's things that it, it frustrates people who are seeking opportunities to imbibe in Utah, but it's also a, an identity marker that a lot of people who even while feeling alienated by that culture also sort of embrace it. You know, if you mean it, if you want to be a connoisseur of fine wine in Utah, you have to work harder than people in other states in order to do that. And there's a there's a pride in that, I think, sometimes. Um, uh, finally, this the, the particular topic, um, I think we've all noticed this um, kind of a cheeky advertising um, the you know the commercial beers, Utah companies and the local companies using Mormon ideas and concepts. Yes, and this really boomed in in on a large scale with the Olympics, as so many things did, sort of when the world's eyes turned toward Utah, and we suddenly in the state for the first time had um, beer advertising on billboards. So the famous polygamy porter of Wasatch Brewery. All of a sudden, you're driving down Interstate 15, and there's a huge billboard featuring this sort of, you know, neoclassical art style of a man with many women. And the slogan, bring some home to the wives, and it was just, you know, you could be scandalized by that or you could be thrilled by by seeing that. But that embracing of the very same identity that, that, that speaks to that alienation or that, you know, lack of consideration in the alcohol culture of Utah ends up being a major theme in the way that alcohol is produced. And it speaks to that sense of, hey, we're owning the weirdness of this place. You know, this is a, a state with a predominant culture that, that perhaps discourages or, or criticizes the production and consumption of alcohol. But we're not going to pretend that's not true. We're just going to, you know, wrap it up in a big hoppy hug. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with the editors of a new book. It's called This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. So Carol Edison, Eric Lassen, and Lynn McNeil uh, are with us. Uh, so I want to address this uh, question or variant of this question to each of you, starting uh, with Eric Lassen. Um, and we've, we've talked about some specifics. Now I want to, to draw back a little bit um, and talk about uh, the concept of foodways, right, which is a, a concept... Uh, used to de- designate the culture of food. So, Eric Lyson, uh, 
in what ways does can food be a very good snapshot or a very good entree into into learning a culture? Yeah, it's interesting to see what people do when it's something that you have to do to survive. So much culture tends to accumulate around those kinds of things. We have rituals and customs and beliefs around birth and death, and it's probably not surprising eating being one of the universal things that every every human and every culture does if they want to hang around, that many varieties emerge to, and that people's identity is is uh, is uh, comes through the creation and consumption of food, and not just that, but the thinking about it and the talking about it and designing you know festivals around it. Like uh, Lynn could probably talk about the, the pie and beer day um, uh, tongue in cheek movement that seems to be doing fairly well several years on. Of uh, and of course that's all about identity defining both as a Utahn and as uh, a not as a, a Latter-day Saint person. And, um, and so the food gives us opportunity. And think of, I'm not going to mention any here, but think of the ethnic jokes that you might have heard as a kid and how, how much food plays, in, plays into that. It's very closely related. Uh, yeah, Lynn, uh, to talk about pie and beer days. This is this is about identity, right? And and defining yourself in a counterculture against the main culture, and all of these things enter in here. Yeah, it really is. And you know, there's a sense, as with so much of folklore, that that food, by being so commonplace and so mundane, is is fairly trivial. And what this really highlights is the way that we use food to say really pointedly, this is who I am. There could be a rejection of the July 24th holiday among those who are not Latter-day Saints, and there's not. There's a, how do we make this, I, I think, inoffensively, largely, and, and but tongue-in-cheek, certainly, how do we make this uh, a holiday about our unique role in Utah? And it's fun, because pie and beer, obviously, is a, you know, a linguistic pun on pioneer, but it becomes a chance for Utahns to do two things that they're good at, which is baking and drinking good beer. And the pairing of those things, and sometimes pie gets edged into pizza pie or savory pies, um, but the you know invitation to a pie and beer day celebration that's included in the book is an invitation I received in a party that I attended where people baked these absolutely incredible pies and paired them with local Utah beers. I mean, it, it was very much a an intentionally crafted culinary experience, but one that was just imbued with this sense of Utahns who might not be of the dominant religious culture still standing up and saying, we belong here. July 24th is ours, too. This state is ours. We like these aspects of living here. Uh, Carol Edison, uh, uh, yes, go ahead. There's another thing to be said. There's another thing to be said, I think, about a special relationship of food, identity, and the whole state of Utah in particular. One of the things we did is set Utah in comparison with other places. And say you you go to the Bay Area, people are all about the sourdough bread, and that's a big 
iconic thing there, both for tourists and for local consumption. In Boston, tourists like baked beans, so people in Boston make them, but it seems to be less of a big deal there for the locals and more for tourists, but still somewhat of a thing. Uh, you have regional cuisines. If you wanted a plate of uh, collard greens and grits and fried catfish, there's a number of states where that would be a very normal thing to order from from a menu. So you've got city-level iconic foods. You've got regional-level iconic stuff. Sometimes states like New Mexico and Texas have full integrated cuisines. But what struck us about Utah is how many of these things, this isn't a Salt Lake thing or a Provo thing, but this is a Utah thing. And what's really underscored by a, a legend I've heard, I don't know if it's true or not, about a burger place in window for on the on the Nevada side that had a sign that said, um, "Don't ask us. You're not in Utah any, anymore. We don't have fry sauce, but we have slots." Which I think is a great illustration of I think one of the most salient state boundaries in the in the whole in the whole country. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Carol Edison, that a similar question to you. This this idea of. Uh uh, food is a is a main expression of uh, of a culture and, a, and an identity. Well, certainly, <clears throat> to follow up on Eric's point, get that you get down to the municipal level in Utah, and that's where you see a lot of the uh, the identity to food. Um, there were agricultural festivals once again that were started uh, the first part of the 1900s, mainly as a way of promoting local crops. I think, that if I remember correctly, the first one was in North Ogden, and they were promoting cherries, saying, come to our festival, sample our cherries. Um, this was a big deal in the 20s and 30s as a way of uh, creating a bigger economy. Well, there were different crops all over the state that were being raised and people that were uh, competing against each other to become the onion capital or the tomato capital or the raspberry capital. And people ended up becoming so attached to those identities that a century later, some of those festivals still continue or some of those expressions still continue, even though the crop as a commercial offering is long gone. I was driving around Hooper out on the uh, next close to Antelope Island by the lake, they used to have a tomato festival because they raised so many t- tomatoes. The festival's now gone, but every single one of their street signs has a little tomato on it. Um, these, these, uh, these symbols have value. Uh, people are very, very proud of where they came from and what is grown there. By the way, um, I just uh, happened upon this photograph. brings back a good memory for me. Um, a, f- a photograph of the famous pickle pie from Sunglow Cafe in Bicknell, which I've had, and it's, it's quite good. <laughs> yeah, that's another example of a tourism initiative that became something well-loved by the populace. Um, there was a woman named Eula Cooker, I think, who had created pies basically Depression-era pies out of whatever she could make them from. Um, in the winter when you don't have fruit around, well, let's try some pickles or let's try some beans. And she became famous for her pies. They were, uh, she made, she owned and worked in the Sun Glow Cafe, and that's where the pies were, and the Travel Council picked up on that and started advertising it, and 
today everybody knows about pickle pies from Bicknell. Yeah, so that's kind of the opposite of what you were talking about before. This is a tourist uh, offering that became a, f- a favorite locally. Yep, I think, you know, food <laughs> food can end up being important from a lot of different routes because it's so important to us. It's what we we deal with every day, and we want, you know, we, we try and make it creative and more tasty, and it's uh, it's a focus of our lives, and... Whatever way it can become important, it's important. It's it's like the Green River melons. That's that's something else that was a commercial, uh, and then later a tourist kind of thing. But the truth is, is they still raise lots and lots of melons in Green River, and they've expanded the varieties and expanded their marketing so that now we can find them in northern Utah in the season at all of the roadside stands. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment with the editors of a new book. Uh, it's called This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. Uh, Carol Edison, uh, Eric Elasson, and uh, Lynn McNeil are with us. And I put out uh, the question uh, to listeners, uh, what is a favorite food tradition of yours? Or maybe you have a favorite recipe you'd like to share or uh, you know, favorite food from your uh, cultural background. Or maybe you discovered something iconic uh, in Utah. Um, the place to reach us is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And at the beginning of the segment, after this break, we'll uh, have an email from Joan. So more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing the great outdoors with hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com or visit 199 North Main in Logan. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on your health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for Juicy Lucy Burgers. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on your health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. The first debate was chaos. The New question Supreme is, Justice, the radical question, left, will you shut up, your, man? Listen. The second one was canceled after the president tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, former Vice President Biden and President Trump face off one last time before election night. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us Thursday night for NPR's special live coverage of the presidential debate from NPR News. Thursday night at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. The new book is uh, This is the Plate, Utah Food Traditions. It's out from University of Utah Press, and we have with us the editors, Carol Edison, Eric Eliasson, and uh, Lynn McNeil. Um, and uh, I have been uh, offering uh, for listeners to, to weigh in as well with your question or comment, but uh, specifically, uh, food's important in your family, or a comment on uh, Utah food traditions. And we have this email from Joan. Joan says, just moved back to Utah from South Texas and have discovered your station. Love your shows. Thanks for the diversity. Thanks, Joan. Our family never ate Jello. Our parents both grew up with fresh whole milk uh, from um, 
Salt Lake City, and Dad grew up on a farm in Idaho. Uh, her her mother grew up at Fresh Hole Milk from Salt Lake City. Dad grew up on a farm in Idaho. Uh, even when our longtime nearby source was shut down for not meeting new concrete floor standards in his milking area, Mom and Dad found another whole milk supplier. As a young girl, one of my chores was to uh, bike a mile to their place, pick up two metal cans of milk, and bike back home, avoiding sharp turns to keep the milk pails from upsetting um, the, the bike and myself. <laughs> we uh, loved uh, the cream on our hot cracked wheat porridge, which my brothers ground fresh every morning from our two-year supply. And uh, for special occasions, mom would make a delicious panouche candy or homemade ice cream that we would uh, pack with fresh snow to turn. I had the responsibility of sitting on top of it while the brothers churned. Our dad was very frugal, but we, seven of us kids, knew that he was good for a hamburger from the Dairy Queen when we were spending all day canning for our winter storage. We uh, dried, uh, juiced, froze, and canned everything they could to follow the profit and provide for our family on one income, so our mom was always home to care for us. Looking forward to reading your book. And that's uh, from, from Joan. Uh, Eric Eliasson, uh, and comments on that. That's a, a lot of sort of uh, Utah and, and Mormon traditions packed in there. Oh, yeah, a lot. Of, it, it reminded me that as we speak, I have uh, dehydrator trays soaking in my kitchen sink. I have an uh, apple tree that some years is great, some years isn't. This year it's great, and I don't know something deep in my, my uh, Latter-day Saint upbringing bones is, makes it feel sinful to me to let all those go to waste, and so I'm dehydrating them with, uh, uh, with my new dehydrator that I got. And that's and people do this lots of places, but uh, you know Utah is a center for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, Carol, listen, what what resonates to, to, to you from Joan's uh, email? There, there's, uh, for example, food storage. That's a you know kind of a um, Latter Day Saint uh, thing, Utah thing. Yeah, it sounds like their family took it really seriously and took it one step more than most people do. They actually used the wheat and rotated it. <laughs> there are lots and lots of stories about uh, lots of wheat in cans in basements that hadn't been looked at or touched for decades, and it's it's really refreshing to hear a story about people who actually used it. It's, that's a, that's a, a bridge too far for many and a really hard thing to do. But... Yeah, putting things up and canning, that is a big tradition here. And um, uh, it's getting, with, with pro- problems in the world, is getting to be uh, more of interest more widely. And I certainly grew up with the tradition and still enjoy doing things. Um, I can peaches every year and make salsa every year. I've got it down just to those two essentials. But um, I grew up with a mom who went out and picked raspberries and pears and all kinds of stuff and canned them, and we had fruit for dessert all year, all, all winter long. Uh, and I think that's probably a, a real common thing from the 50s and 60s. Lynn McNeil, um, uh, you know, some of, these, some of these traditions are pretty insider. Others would be shared by many others. What's your reaction to Joan's experience here? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking as I was listening to that that idyllic description that I think that's what my mom back in the Bay Area in California thinks my my life is like here. Like, you know, <laughs> freshly milked cow milk and, and cracked wheat for breakfast because I think that 
you know, she thinks I've sort of gone off the deep end of, of, you know, rural living. But I think what stood out to me the most, and this was something that came up a lot, and you see it throughout the book, um, the comment that, you know, dad would still treat us to a, a Dairy Queen burger at the end of a long day of working. There's a huge interrelationship between sort of, you know, officially produced food, franchises, chains, restaurants, commercial endeavors, and people's own perception of their local food culture that I think is really cool. And that, you know, I think people hear about a book written by folklorists about food and think it's going to be all old world ethnic traditions, old styles of cooking, home family traditions. And it is absolutely those things. But it's also the restaurant that was always the birthday spot in the family that you grew up in. It's the Arctic Circle fry sauce that you eat. It's the Greek pastrami, pastrami burger joint that, that you went to with your friends. And that interplay between commercial food and home-prepared food, I just think is really, is really a hallmark of the way that food is so integrated into our lives. One of the things that we have in the book is a handwritten recipe card for Bratton's Clam Chowder. And Bratton's was a, a restaurant in Salt Lake City that served seafood. But people take ownership of those recipes. The people do it now. They make their own, um, you know, Costa Vida meals or Cafe Rio meals at home, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to replicate those recipes at home. And that interplay, I think, is a really, is a really meaningful part of this whole cultural milieu. Um, Eric Eliasson, um, you, you say, or the, the, in the book, uh, it's recounted that uh, this book's your brainchild, and 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 you had that idea when you were enjoying the food at Black Sheep Cafe in Provo. Yeah, um, the I had thought for some time that this you know, the, the convergence of uh, you know the food moment uh, culturally in the U.S. and also my interest in in regional and Latter Day Saint folklore might make for a good. A book project, but and uh, and I knew Lynn had some interest in this, and so after the Folklore Society of Utah meeting, we had a we met at Black Sheep Cafe, which um, of course gets a shout out in in the book, and is doing fascinating things with Native American food traditions. I I, I uh, suggested, hey, we should do do a book on Utah Utah foods, and can you tell what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> the 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 book it was sort of it was sort of well what the one major thing that happened was that Carol came on board and Carol as our state folklorist for so long had such a just incredible vision of what all this needed to encompass but the book just sort of started growing i think that you know my my thought when when Eric first described this was that we would probably end up with maybe a a reader with a handful of chapters, each taking on a different aspect of Utah food. Maybe it would be used in, you know, university courses about food culture and folklore and things like that. But the more we looked and the more we talked to people and the more people are saying things to us like, well, you've got to talk about Sampete Turkey, right? And we're going, oh, okay, yeah, clearly. People are so connected to, to their regional foods that we realized, man, we, how do we do this justice 
without including everything. So it sort of ballooned out of proportion. We started thinking maybe we're writing something more akin to an encyclopedia, you know, mm-hmm. than, than, a, than a collection of essays, and the press was not on board with printing an encyclopedia. So they, they helped us rein that idea back in, and we ended up with what I think is this really great format where I think it's a fun book to read. There's recipes in it. There's short entries on the first KFC franchise in Utah, which is fantastic. Um, And there's longer, really informative, in-depth essays about things like food preservation and home canning efforts. And it turns out to just be this really amazing, diverse package that if you read it, you will never again think that Utah does not have a cuisine. Uh, we have, yeah, go we ahead. have uh, around 60 contributors to to this book, and it wouldn't have been possible without the contributions of of scholars, of business people, of people who are members of the ethnic groups that they write about, journalists, food bloggers. So it comes from a lot of different perspectives. So it tries to be you know academically informed, but um, you know it's very much a popular access book full-color coffee table with with recipes. Oh, yeah, and academic footnotes if you're interested in, in that sort of thing. But we also have decided to, we have a picture of the, the first uh, uh, KFC franchise in Murray, which is an important part of uh, our food history here. And it gets a, you know, an extended um, a caption for, the, for those pictures. Whereas, of course, you know, fry sauce, that gets a, its own whole chapter, standing as it does, is perhaps the most predominant you know, living food tradition that, that, uh, that Utahns talk, talk and think about. In fact, uh, fry sauce uh, makes the cover of uh, <laughs> this is the plate. Uh, so we just have about oh two minutes left. I want to do just a really quick response here, starting with Carol Edison. Uh, first thing that comes to mind, uh, what's, what's your favorite uh, food or dish that, uh, that's mentioned in the book? Well, I'll give a shout-out to Dixie Salad. Um, Dixie Salad comes from Washington County, St. George area. Uh, It's a tradition that got started down there at Thanksgiving time based upon the local products that are there. Because of the low elevation, they can actually grow pomegranates and pecans in the region. And in the fall, they've got plenty of them. And somebody decided to add those two ingredients to basically a, uh, a Waldorf salad, which is uh, apples, chopped up apples with nuts and cream, and created Dixie Salad. And, of course, named Dixie because that's the area of the state that was uh, where they were able to grow a lot of the southern-type crops, and that, that name persists in many ways. Uh, the thing that I found fascinating about it, besides the fact that it's just absolutely delicious and a great thing to serve at Thanksgiving, is that all of the references I could find to it online uh, were from people who either lived in Washington County, across the line in Nevada, or had grown up in that area. They were the ones who knew what Dixie Salad was and called it. Mm, So uh, that's a great example of a regional foodway. All right. Uh, let's see, the next two, maybe just uh, just um, name it. We won't have time to describe it because uh, we're just about out of time. Eric Eliasson, uh, the favorite food or oh, dish? Mine, mine, mine comes to mind. It's a raspberry jello salad with um, 
pretzels on the bottom that I had at the Thanksgiving Point uh, annual food contest, and it was hard to—I was a judge, and it was hard to keep off of my face how delicious that was. <laughs> you had to have a poker face and tell the actual announcement. Yeah, you have to have yeah. a poker face when you're a food judge, and yeah. I, I was struggling. Uh, Lynn McNeil, favorite food or dish? You know, I'm going to cut to the chase and refer people to page 49 in the book where you will find a recipe for funeral potatoes with crushed sour cream and onion Lay's potato chips on top. And it doesn't get much better than that. Oh, yeah, beautiful. I'm turning to page 49 quickly here. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Very beautiful. And and um, and a great, uh, yeah, great recipe. Well, uh, much else in the book. Um, uh, pick it up. Well worth the read. This is The Plate, Utah Food Traditions. Uh, Carol Edison, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Eric Eliason, thank you. Thank you, Tom, for having us. And Lynn McNeil, thank you. Thank you, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. I'm Susie Lafaelli from St. George, Utah. I listen to Utah Public Radio on my UPR app. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we salute a city with a vibrant world music scene, New York. Musicians from Africa, South America, the Caribbean, and beyond all enrich the city's musical tapestry. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music in New York, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.